Thanks for tuning in to the HR Uprising podcast. I'm your host, Lucinda Carney. The HR Uprising is focused on helping forward-thinking people professionals deliver real lasting value in their organizations. I'm a chartered psychologist, speaker, and trainer, and recently authored the best-selling business book, How to Be a Change Superhero. My day job is founder and CEO of software and training business Actus. This gives me the opportunity to work with other businesses like yours. We are focused on building a better workplace for people wherever they are located with the help of our performance, learning and talent management software and our training and consultancy services. Every week on the podcast, I will be covering different topics and challenges joined by relevant experts and real life people professionals. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really hope you enjoy and get value from this week's episode. Welcome to this week's HR Uprising podcast. So this week, I have got the director of Ravi Park Academy with me, Graham Curtis. And I reached out to Graham because I personally, um, over the last sort of 20 odd years, I've always found that the Ravi Park content, if you like, um, I see it very much as the home of organisational development. I guess that may be a little bit um, of a big, a, a big expectation to set upon you, Graham. But um, certainly, I remember way back when I was in um, in an ODU role myself, I was lucky enough to go on a, on a course there, and I found it really, really insightful. So certainly, it was ahead of when you could learn more about organisational development. And so with that in mind, I saw Graham doing some reaching out on LinkedIn and thought he would be a great person to talk to about organisational development, because I know that this is a subject that many of our listeners um, you know, find really fascinating, challenging, etc. So we want to do a little bit of demystifying. So Graham, a little bit of a long intro from me, but would you like to introduce yourself, your role at Roffy, maybe a bit about your background? Sure. Thanks. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on your podcast. It's a real uh, pleasure to be here and to have a chat with you. So yeah, I, I'm Graham Curtis, as you said. So I, I, um, I started life in, in in operational roles and did quite a lot of leadership and management roles and got really interested in leadership and management and, and change management. And, and so I was looking around for some something to help me understand that. And and I wasn't I wasn't planning on a big change in career, but that's kind of what I've ended up with. Because I went to Roffey Park uh, in 2007 uh, and I managed to persuade my organisation at that time to support me in and doing the Masters at Roffey Park, the MSc at Roffey Park, and I completed and graduated that in 2009. And it's not an underestimation, it's not an overestimation to say that it changed my life, really, um, and and moved my career into a very different direction. Um, and, and it's interesting because I didn't have a prior degree. I didn't go to university when I left school. I went straight into the world of work. So I, I remember I had to work quite hard to persuade Roffey Park to let me on their MSc at the time. Um, and um, and they did, happily, uh, and I graduated. And, and that gave me a, a different level of confidence to understand what I thought I was doing. And, and it gave me the credentials to start to think of myself as an organisation development practitioner. So I, when I finished the Masters, I, went, I got really interested in um, some theories around complexity theory uh, so I was just finishing off a bit of me, a bit about my kind of journey, if you like. And I got really interested in 
how change comes about and how people interact together to make change happen. Uh, so I went and did a, a doctorate at the University of Hertfordshire that was started by uh, Professor Ralph Stacey uh, quite a long time ago. And um, I graduated that uh, in 2018. And, you know, having a, a young lad from a comprehensive and a, and a council estate in Sunderland in the northeast of England, I did the, 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 the masters that roughly gave me the confidence to go on and, and and go on and do much more in the academic sphere than I ever thought might be possible for me. So, and now here I am at Roffey Park, uh, leading the current postgraduate education part of Roffey Park. And I had the great privilege in the summer of uh, reading out the names for the latest graduates of Roffey Park MSC at the at the graduations of the University of Sussex, who are our validation partner. In Brighton, and that was a, that was felt like there was a kind of coming round uh, to a full circle, uh, being able to to read out the names of those that have graduated from Roffey most recently. There's a few questions. Thank you for your background there. I didn't realise that you'd gone in without a first degree, and I think that's incredibly inspiring. That a Roffey gave you that first chance, and then you've gone on to um, do a PhD. And sorry, does that make you a professor or a doctor, or what? What does that mean? <laughs> Technically, my mum, my mum would love me to be a professor. It's kind of the question she keeps asking me. But no, uh, uh, sadly not. Uh, it it does entitle me to the title of doctor, yeah. so that would make me Doctor Graham Curtis. But I'm very judicious about when I would describe myself in that way. It always feels slightly awkward when I do. But yes, that's that's kind of formally. So it was a, it was a professional doctorate at Hertfordshire rather than a, a PhD. And again, that's one of those kind of technical uh-huh. definitions. But a professional doctorate is focused on what you're doing at work as your practice. And and that was what I was really interested in, exploring what I thought I was doing at work through my doctoral qualification. But the other thing I would say in terms of not having a first degree is that something I take very seriously. So I I consider all the applications for our current masters at Roffey Park. And I would certainly say that not having a first degree is absolutely no bar to coming onto our masters. We we invite uh, people who have a 2-1 degree, but we also talk about the equivalent level of, of, of professional experience. And so our MSc is focused on people who are working because the MSc is very much about reflecting and reflexively engaging with what you're doing at work. But um, for me uh, and my, my own personal experience is that uh, pe- people having the opportunity to come to academic study for the first time in their lives, perhaps sometimes in their 30s, 40s, or even 50s, uh, is is a really exciting thing to encourage people to do. And the way our master's is designed, the very first part of it is all about uh, helping people get to grips with what it means to read and write academically and get into the vernacular and the and the lexicon of, of the kind of weird way academics talk to each other and the weird ways that they reference each other and that kind of thing. So we, we help our learners move into that space through that first module on our masters. We take it very seriously. Uh, so I guess maybe at the end um, then, Graham, because actually there may well be listeners who would have thought they'd like to do a qualification in, in something or, or no more. I mean, I think I just went and did um, a, a sort of a day on OD. Obviously, yeah. I've done stuff on OD because I have my psychology background, but it was I found the day itself was really, really valuable. Um so we'll perhaps let people know where to reach out if they're interested in finding out more about the sort of things that you do. And that's quite nice to know that it is accessible. It's not something that needs to be uh, 
yeah, something that people need to be fearful of. And I think that's the purpose of this podcast episode, isn't it? What we're going to do is talk a little bit about what the values of OD are, um, you know, why we find it intimidating, you know, what is OD, what isn't OD, that sort of thing. And then we were going to dive in on a few, you mentioned one of them, complexity theory. We were going to talk a little bit about some of the classic OD jargon and try and um, demystify some of that so that it's just a little bit less intimidating because of all the three-letter acronyms, potentially. Before we go there, Graham, um, overall, I mean, as I say, I only know Ruffy Park for the sort of management development. Obviously, there are other other institutions out there, other places you can go and do qualifications um, uh, and, and probably similar ones in, in OD. But I know that does Ruffy, is it is this the topic that does Ruffy do more broadly um, executive development? What, yes, what yes, yes. We have a very broad range of executive development programmes. Um, you know, from you know, so not just academic programs. We have a range of academic programs that people are going to engage with, but it's also a range of our own programs, not just in organisation development. It can be in personal effectiveness or management uh, practice or leadership practice or uh, diversity inclusion. We run a number of both open and program open programs in which individuals can sign up for themselves, and we also offer a significant amount of kind of tailored programs. Uh, and our open programs into client uh, organisations, so corporations and client organisations will come to us with a specific need, and we will work with them to to to, to provide a program uh, to to supply that to to meet that learning need. And we also offer consultancy services where clients are trying to understand the challenges they're facing or trying to diagnose some of their problems, and we will support them in thinking that through and maybe even helping them make the change happen all underpinned by that kind of OD perspective. Okay. All right. So we said we were going to talk about the values of OD and, you know, what might bring somebody into OD. But how would you know that maybe it might be a good fit for you as a people professional? What would you say there? So I think what sets organisational development apart from other change management approaches, and I'm not saying other change management approaches don't aren't values-led, but organisation development is very explicitly underpinned by a set of values that are humanistic values. They're about inclusion, they're about democratisation, uh, and they're about helping people have the agency. Or that's another one of those words that we use that people go, well, what does that mean? Um, it, and, you know, being able to have a steer in what happens to them being able to participate in the processes that 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 decide what change happens. So all these so inclusion and and democratization are about saying to our workforces, come and talk to us about what we think needs to happen and, and allowing those voices to have a big stake in in what happens. And that's you know I think that's really important important from a both a moral and ethical perspective. So those values are really important. And, and and increasingly I think in the world of work today they become ever more important because we we need to we need to be really vigilant in organizational change process to take those seriously. I mean we see a number of things in the news at the moment, don't we, about uh, big layoffs in big companies, you know, the the, the recent uh, example being Twitter, where the way you know it's understandable that companies have to make changes. And that means changes to the kind of workforce they need and the skills and competencies they work they need. That's understandable, and that's what workforces, that's what organisations have to do. What OD tries to do is is support organisations to think about how they do those things, 
So that how those things happen are, are as humanistic and caring about the people involved as we possibly can be in order to make sure that it's a process that supports the dignity of the people involved. So that really would fit with most professional HR people would see that even when they're having to do process, although there's a level of which they have to act on behalf of their organisation, sure. they would still want to do it with professionalism and integrity and, you know, concern for the the human the humans involved in their process and I, I, you know having been an hr director myself in the last 12 years or so I, I understand the tensions that come with that the demands to make change quickly the demands to make um cash savings or to change the organization quickly in response to an ex, you know an external or an environmental pressure uh can often drive us to 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 do things and often we find, I, I certainly I found myself in the past in, as as an HR leader in that place of having to be the conscience of the organisation in a leadership conversation where we we have to support the the delivery of a change, but do that in a way that also recognises the organisational values because often organisations will have these values, uh, you know, they aspire to these values, and and our job as HR leaders or as OD leaders is to is to help organisations remember those values and, and act in accordance with them or in, in in synergy with them. Okay, so so I mean, so that makes sense in terms of um, you know that breadth of thinking about others and just the general concern and integrity. Almost, would you say there's certain values or traits in somebody who who might be drawn towards OD as a profession or as a, you know as something that they'd like to get involved in that makes someone more likely to be an OD person? rather than another role? Um, oh, that's a really good question. And I, I can only answer that from my, my own experience perspective, I think. But I think what 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 I see in, in the OD people I know is is a deep curiosity about people and change and organisations. Uh, and, and and also that kind of ethical direction that, that says, you know, I'm curious and I care about people and organisations um, and, and a kind of almost, I think, there's probably another couple of things I would say that um, I see in, in, in the great OD professionals I've worked with and the ones I've known is that they're also, they carry with them a kind of confidence of doubt, which sounds like a bit of a weird thing to say, but it's kind of really important that we hold what we know lightly enough so that we accept that we could be wrong. You know, so we, with that curiosity comes this willingness to challenge ourselves in what we think we know so that we can continue to learn. Yeah, uh, and I think that's funny. Um, I, wrote, I wrote, wrote down sort of open-minded or comfort with ambiguity, which I, is, I think yeah. is something there because even though we might all try to be using the best evidence which is available to us for, to make the yeah. best decision. You know, in organisations and people, there's very, it's not, it isn't all factual. It's not that straightforward. So you have to make the best judgment and be aware that it might not be the, it's the best one with the information you have at the time, but it might not be the only one or, or you know, the one you want to stick with. Yeah, yeah. And and the other thing I think that goes with that is that the, the, the technical word or the, the academic word would be reflexivity but I think what that means is that it means we're deeply curious about ourselves mm-hmm. and, and where what leads us what challenges us and our impact on others 
and others impact on us emotionally and physically. So we're really deeply curious about how what we're doing impacts on the people around us and vice versa. Yeah. So if you've got this curiosity, you've got this willingness to be wrong, this doubt, and you've got this kind of reflexive interest in what what makes me tick and how do I impact others and vice versa, then I think you've got the basis of uh, what often all day practitioners will call kind of self as instrument or use of self. It kind of encompasses the things mm. I've just been describing, I think. Yeah, and I think often in the same package would be someone who comes over as quite flexible or comfortable with change. Again, I suppose that all kind of links into that same reflex reflexibility. I'm not sure if that's the word. Reflexibility, yeah. Yeah, because it, it, you've got to be prepared to um, make decisions on the hoof potentially without all of the information. And that's where the curiosity, I suppose, because you're curious as you go, you're more likely to make a, maybe an intuitively good decision but it isn't because you're so curious and been taking interest in it it maybe is still a a, a good educated decision actually yeah you've probably so one of the things i think is really important and it's true for organizational development people as well as it is for managers and leaders is is the ability to make good judgments uh, and good judgment is founded on both the kind of ethical challenge in that as well as understanding the context you're in you know, and and um, and it includes those things I've just described—the curiosity, the doubt, and the other things. So, you know, doing finding an answer that is good enough for now, and being willing to change that as the as the situation emerges and unfolds. So, I think uh, that's what body you know, yes. learning is helping yeah. people to develop that ability. And that and that's where. Uh, if you're someone who's in an organisation, you've got to have the confidence because quite often people who might be doing the OD, they're not necessarily going to be at the top level of an organisation. But then that can mean you, you don't feel confident if you can't be absolutely certain that it's right. You might not feel as confident to you know, say this is what I think we should do. But it's having that confidence to say this is what I think we should do with the best information we have. And if you decide to change it later, that's OK, too. Um, caveating that and uh, yeah, to having that confidence yeah. and convictions. Yeah, absolutely. So, absolutely. um, so that's a bit about the way. So, I suppose that was just an interesting discussion because of the people listening. I might, you know, am I someone who would fit? Do you, you know, do those sort of values and traits resonate, or you know, are you somebody who needs to have absolute certainty in which and have things done and dusted, and you can't really don't like things if there's too much ambiguity that might not fit as well for you maybe yeah there are other areas in um of a people profession that you could do which would feel more comfortable. Uh, but if we then talked about sort of OD, uh, how do you know if you're doing OD? I've done this on a podcast before, trying to sort of slightly differentiate if doing something that's maybe more of a pure HR and L&D intervention or something that's more OD. Now, my perception of it, which you would obviously correct me on as more of an expert, it, is that it's it's something maybe less tactical for me than OD intervention might be a series of interventions which are in pursuit of a sort of broader strategic organizational aim uh, as opposed to just sort of a one-off or uh, you know just a recruitment drive uh, you know so it might be yeah. recruitment as part of a talent management process that's going to help you to have the right people in line to address a, a skills shortage so that's my kind of take on it what how would you describe it no I think that's that's fair enough I think often in organizational organizational development we'll talk about um looking at the whole system and i think what we mean by that is that we're 
trying to look across the whole organizational effort for uh, opportunities for alignment, to bring things together, to create changes. And some of that might be in recruitment, some of it might be in competency framework, some of it might be in structures, some of it might be in policy and process. Uh, some of it might actually be developing conversations to talk about what do we mean by the values that we say we have. So that starts to change people's ways of thinking uh, as they work together to uh, to understand what good looks like. And, and looking across the organisation as a whole, and influencing the different parts of the organization in order to to create that alignment. And I think the other thing, if I come back to what I was saying about what makes good practice in terms of organization development with those things about curiosity and doubt, et cetera, I think trying to instill some of that in an organizational kind of way of thinking as well so that we don't, I think one of the great risks is if we don't think carefully about what we're doing is alignment can become the creation of a cult because you, everything has to think in one way. Everyone has to think in, in a particular way. And I think what we what we aspire to as OD practitioners is to support people to disagree well so that we can, we can argue about what the future of an organisation is on an ongoing basis so that we're not ossifying or solidifying the organisation in any way. We're creating the, the fluidity in order to cope with environmental change so that we are constantly looking for ways to argue it through together so that we can come up with the best possible solution. So that's um, a really so, yeah. interesting statement there. So it's something, and I think I'm just trying to let it land and make sure I understand it, that sometimes alignment can seem like a bit of a cult. So, like, so is that, when you're saying that, is that where people become so sort of programmed into there's only one ach- way of achieving it that we can't well, yeah. debate it? And challenge. Let me give you an, let me give you an interesting example that I always find interesting. I, I, I imagine your experience of organisations might be similar to mine, in that often organisations will create competency frameworks, mm-hmm. and those competency frameworks will often be aligned with the performance management uh, uh, process. Yeah. So you have the performance management framework that then takes up a competency framework and employees are measured against that competency framework as to how well or not they are performing against the behavioural descriptors in the competency framework. Does that, that make sense yeah. to you? Do you recognise that yes. description? Uh, and, and alongside that, we'll also talk about how much the organisation values diversity and inclusion. Okay. And I'm interested in the tension between very specific behavioural descriptors of how people should and must behave in order to perform well in an organisation alongside our appreciation of difference. And surely difference needs to include difference behaviourally mm-hmm. as well as anything else. So how do we, and, and, and certainly me as an OD practitioner, I'm really interested in how as an organisation we are able to talk about that tension rather than trying to resolve it. Mm-hmm. Rather than trying to collapse it and solidify it, actually have an ongoing, active, alive conversation about what that tension means for us so we can continue to talk it through. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? And I won't get into it because I've got lots of thoughts that, and I, I can see how things like values and things, that, that's, I think, that's an yeah. interesting debate. The reality yeah. is, again, that probably goes into there are some personality types who would actually find it really confusing, potentially, than if if your competency framework doesn't definitively include diversity and inclusion or um, how does that interface with the values? Because whereas, you know, if you're slightly more flexible in that interpretation, you can see how these can all potentially weave together and supplement 
or challenge them. But some people might find that quite confusing. Um, and that's quite an interesting, that you could write a whole thesis, I imagine, on that. Actually. So this is really interesting, is because I think it points to why OD is trying to look across an organisation, because yeah. we're in, we then be interested in uh, what, what management competence in the organisation looks like, so that managers can be given the space and the, the ability to make judgments locally in whatever context they find themselves in so that they are able with their teams to manage that tension between what the values look like, what the competencies mean, and how we how we value diversity and inclusion in our context. And that, you know, in some of these big organisations, that's across continents, that's across countries, and they're having to make, local managers are having to make sense of that. And that means, obviously, we want to look at how we support managers to have the competence and capability and confidence to be able to occupy their space and to make their judgments themselves. So that all becomes part of OD's business in thinking about how the, the policies, processes, management competence starts to interact with each other. It is about people are seeing, and managers and seeing that bigger picture of why are we doing something like that. Yeah, well, absolutely. It's not, we're not just doing that for the sake of it. It's like we're doing it in order to um, give everybody an opportunity to develop, to to um, engage people, to treat people fairly and consistently. The, so it's having that whole organisational context as to why certain activities are, are there. Uh, and Indeed. I guess those can often be mixed. And that's what I suppose uh, in an OD framework, we're trying to help people see that and maybe translate that because things are sometimes seen in isolation. So that's I'd help them translate, So I help them translate it for themselves rather than telling them what the translation is. Yes, yes. But OD has this, uh, I think another, change, another difference from OD to other ways of working, I think, is that OD practitioners, when we're doing our job really well, I think, we are trying to do ourselves out of a job. In a great organisation, OD practice isn't required because it's rooted in all of the managers and the leaders and the people that work. Well, there. I was just thinking because it's it's culture, uh, and because yes. a lot of that that would say quite a lot about the culture of an organisation, and yeah. and that's why OD Outfit is involved in culture change or culture development. Yeah. And some of that is then if you get the culture to where you need it to be from an organisational point of view, maybe there's less need for. The OD, or you know, you can put it into other areas, and, and there is always a need because the environment changes, and so we need to change with it. So yeah. it, there is always a need, but it's about having the right level of stability to be able to cope with that change. So it's part of what you were saying, where certain people with different personality types can be can be disconcerted by ever constant change. So that we have to have enough stability in the organisation yeah. to support people to know what to do and enough flexibility in organisation to be able to make responsive changes. Yeah. yeah. I think we both get it. I hope it makes sense to people listening because it is, it is still very broad. It's quite hard. So actually, the other thing in terms of how do we know we're an OD practitioner, I think is there's a big challenge in the OD community. Again, it's a kind of form of tension where we want to we, we be able to describe the profession so people can know what it means to, to reach to practice OD and what it means. And and all of that is really clear in HR, isn't it? You know, so yes. certainly in yes. the UK, you know, we've got CIPD, we've got qualifications, we've got uh, badges and descriptors, and we've got all of that. Much stuff. more knowledge, really... much more obviously knowledge. Yes. So, yeah. uh, and there's lots of things I could talk to you about academically about what's going on there. Yeah. Um one author describes these these ideas as being involved in a thought collective. So the idea of a thought collective has a particular way of thinking 
and 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 those are ascribed in the exams and the and the ways of knowing that you are a practitioner of whatever that that collective is. And HR are really clear about that. So that's really helpful when you're new to HR is a professional and you can you know as you're making your way up the uh, the, the more strategic areas of HR, you know you're doing that because you're kind of crossing over fences as you go. Yeah. In OD, that's much more difficult to understand because it doesn't have that uh, stratification and and and, uh, and specification that HR has. And that comes with challenge because it's much more uncertain. Mm. How do I know I'm a good OD practitioner? Well, that's difficult because there's no kind of hook to hang it on. There's no exams I can pass. Although there are some, you know, you can get an MSc from Office Parks here or something like that, you know. So yeah. it's something for benchmarking process. But and there are other ODs and other MSCs and MAs available. As the BBC likes to say. Yeah. But I, I you know, I I understand that that's difficult and, and there that therefore in some quarters there's this will to try and specify some of that. And on the other hand, there's also the richness that comes from a very broad church with lots of different ways of thinking and ideas and an openness to new ideas. And, you know, we're working across psychology, sociology, anthropology, ethnography. All of these kind of ways of thinking and practicing are all boiling together. I'm going to have and, and I think I'd heard of all of, of, all of them, except... <laughs> So anthropology and ethnography are kind of linked together. It's 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 basically an exploration of how people get on together and what goes on in the relationships between people in a specific context. Um, it's often not a, a, way, a way of practicing OD that we think about a lot. I got really interested in my doctoral studies, uh, certainly in, in a kind of ethnographic approaches, but it's it's really it's being able to... It's not to do with ethnicity, it's to do with... No, no, it's ethnography and anthropology are, are, are particular ways of studying human behaviour and how humans interact. Um, and what it means is to to be detached from your involvement in a particular circumstance. You know, So you start to... There's uh, one author would describe it as becoming a stranger in your own space. So that if you can detach yourself from it, you can see it anew. You yeah. can see the rituals and the or the norms that we're all. There's a there's a if you'll allow me for a second, I, th I don't think this is too academic, but there's a there's a a, a French uh, so, sociologist, philosopher, anthropologist called Pierre Bourdieu, and he calls these things these ideas like uh, norms and, and ways of people behaving, he calls this silent traditions. And he has th there's this phrase that says, silent traditions go without seeing because they come without seeing. And what he means is that uh, ways of behaving together emerge as we're working together without us even noticing. Mm -hmm. And a kind of ethnographic approach allows us to notice these things yeah. and to find ways to talk about them. You know, so um, finding ways to talk about what we think we're doing together is a big part of OD practice. So. There you go, Ethno ethnography. Yes. It's, no, you heard it here first, probably. So I think, uh, you know, so it's it's probably less, so certain OD practice will involve tools and models and the application of tools and models, and I understand that as well. But alongside that, there's this also this curiosity 
often uh, OD practitioners will call it use of self or self as instrument or dialogic practice is another phrase that gets bandied around a lot. Oh, well, that's a good link because what we were going to talk about was some jargon. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I think maybe we've come up, we're already onto yes, that. We there. Yeah, we're in there. So dialogic, that's a classic one, isn't it? So could you explain yeah. what that means? Well, what I think that means is is understanding how we're engaging in conversations with each other and the norms and the silent traditions, as Bourdieu would say, that, that shape those conversations and how we can make good judgments in how we can bring those conversations to our attention so we can start to notice how we talk to each other. And once we've noticed how we talk to each other, then we can have choice about whether we want to continue to talk to each other like that. So are you saying the they, same as ethnographic, dialogic, they sound quite similar? Very right? similar. I think if they're from different traditions, this is the thing. I think dialogic practice would be an OD way of describing. Although I think ethnographers would probably, <laughs> I can imagine ethnographers listening to this podcast and thinking, no, no, that's not what we do. And, and I think what, what they would be less, they'd be less about wanting to actively change what's going on. There'd be more about wanting to notice what's going on. Uh, okay, so, so I think in OD practice, we are actively seeking to change. So that's the dialog di dialogic yeah. approach. So you're so noticing in order to potentially make a change or to notice. We're listening and we're speaking into situations in order to try and shift and move the way we're talking to each other and the words we use and to notice the patterns of how we talk to each other and Is wanting to shift them and move them. Is it very individual or is there an example of something that would count as a, a dialogic practice that someone might do? Is, is, you know, things like focus groups and things, they're not that kind of thing, are they? Or, um... But they could be. I think they could involve dialogic practice. So I don't think there's any delineation. So often we'll talk about an almost the kind of so diagnosis of problems is is yeah. is classic form of organisation development. You'll do a staff survey and yeah. you look at problems that staff survey tells you and then you'll produce a series of prescriptive activities that start to say, well, this is how we should solve that thing. And and that way of thinking, that di di diagnostic way of thinking is often positioned as a kind of opposition to dialogic practice or they're the, the finding ways to talk differently to each other. But actually, I think they both have they both have a place together. You know, I think you can take a dialogic to approach to a diagnostic approach as well. So they, they kind of come together as a way of thinking about what we're doing when we're practicing organisation development. So if you sat on a wall while there was a focus group, so, you know, like a fly on the wall type approach to a focus group or a world cafe, you might be able to make some observations in, in that way or my extra. Well, you'd be involving yourself in the conversations. You'd become immersed in the conversations. You're talking at those tables. You know, you're working with the people. You're working with the people before that World Cafe event. You're working with the people after that World Cafe event. And you're, you're engaging in conversations and dialogue all the time in order to help people notice those things. So an event might be a World Cafe event. And it forms part of a broader perspective on what we're trying to achieve in organisation development and the conversations that are taking place all around that, whether it's in boardrooms or in leadership team meetings or uh, other other influencing areas where we can have conversations with people that start to shift and move the organisation to where it needs to go. And including the conversations that make the decisions about where it needs to go. So I can see how that would fit as OD. And are we saying that dialogic might apply there or not apply there? It's only if you're sort of stepping back from it. Um, 
I think we're doing it all the time, personally. I think if you're really, if you're practicing organization development well, then you're engaged in dialogic, pra- dialogic practice all the time. But it's basically about- dialogue, dialogue and talking yeah. to people, understanding it and, and, yeah. Noticing the patterns and the ways and, and the words like used. Sensing them, yeah. Yeah, sensing them and talking about them and bringing them into the conversation. So, so actually, quite a lot of people are listening to this. They might actually do that naturally. It goes back to curiosity, a thing, isn't it? If you're you know, yeah. interested and you're saying, oh, I, did, I wonder if other parts of the, depart- of the business yeah. act like that. Okay, so we've covered di- dialogic and uh, our new ethnography. Um, what a complexity theory. We talked about that right at the start. Could you tell us a bit about what that means? It's uh, it's it comes from some uh, experiments in the in these in the seventies and eighties done in America and and it, it was it, essentially what they were doing was looking at how change emerges between individual actors over time. So they did some computer experiments and they looked at how when you set a computer program going individual elements of that computer program interact and patterns emerge from that interaction. So one of the patterns that's often referred to is, is uh, you know, how swallows do those things in the sky. It's called murmuration, where you have swallows interacting. And actually what, what they found through this computer um, uh, program was that actually they're working off kind of three fairly simple rules of staying equidistant from each other, staying at a relatively constant speed, and gravitating towards the center. So this kind of is, this creates these patterns for these actors. And then there was another experiment that um, that did that, but also, so in the first experiment, all the little parts were um, homogenous, so they were all exactly the same. They all worked up exactly the same rules. In the second one, they all had different rules to work with. So this second experiment, the patterns became really unpredictable because they're all reacting to each other different. So it becomes very unpredictable as to what pattern would emerge from the way these these different parts are interacting. And what um, organisational development tries to pay attention to is to use that as a, as a metaphor or analogy for what goes on in organisations between people. So as people, we're naturally all different. Mm-hmm. We all become individuals over time. So we're all fundamentally different. And we're all working together all the time, interacting with each other. And that can often be a pattern that is recognisable and stays the same for a long time. And then suddenly it can change. And those changes are when this unpredictable pattern of interaction takes place. So complexity theory is taking that analogy and thinking about it in terms of organisations. And there's a few schools of thought around complexity, some of which uh, kind of see organisations as systems in which this unpredictable activity takes place. And it allows us to kind of look at the system and make changes and, and kind of almost engineer it, but but not be predictable about it. Uh, and other ways of thinking are much more about seeing it as an ongoing process of interaction. So people engaging with each other all the time, sometimes that's predictable and sometimes it's not. And it's about working out the power dynamics in all of that and how, and how we can work with it and be more responsive and flexible with it. Just accepting the fact that just because we have a plan, it doesn't mean the plan's going to work. As soon as you start... Because you're involving people. So maybe a simplistic one, I'm thinking if you're trying to put a change in place and you think about a stakeholder analysis of people and 
you know, you've got pockets of people who you've got people of positional power, but you've got the people who've got the real sort of the ear of others that it influences, maybe social media influence equivalent in an organization. All of that makes things quite unpredictable. Uh, actually, in the world, social media makes life very unpredictable in terms of complexity mm. theory, potentially well, that sort of thing. Okay. So, well, yes, and, yes, and uh, and it's important, therefore, to recognise that any stakeholder analysis is a snapshot that is already out and did as soon as we've got it. So it's that kind of need to pay constant attention to it. And and, and actually, you mentioned systems. So are you saying they are a lot? They they often coexist. Systems thinking and complexity theory. Do they? In some, in some, in some ways, of some people think that some people would say yes, systems thinking is a big part of thinking about complexity, and some people would challenge that in terms of actually the system, and in fact the organisation can't really be anything other than an imaginative idea. The way that we think about organisations as things. So right. we create this idea that an organisation is a thing. But when you say, well, where is it then? It's hard to point to because it's really just a, an imaginative idea. That's what so some people systems do. thinking is thinking about an organisation as a thing. Well, it, 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 it's, it's thinking of organisation as a thing and a, a thing involving many moving parts that interact with each other. So it'll come from engineering or biology. Metaphors will be used to describe an organisation as a system. So uh, thinking about the knock-on, the potential knock-on impact, you think you may do something very sim simple somewhere, um, like an ecosystem, you know, something similar, and it has a knock-on effect elsewhere. Exactly. Yeah. And, okay. and, and we're looking for what those knock-on effects will be all the time in yes. order to manage the system towards uh, uh, a kind of good good order, good good. Uh, which again it's actually it's quite a complex system thing but it's probably quite common sense in certain areas that hr would probably be doing where you know they're told yeah. to lay people off or make a pay they can't do a pay rise or something and it's seen as a shortcut just financial move but in the whole concept of it knock on in terms of engagement and retention or the whole repercussions of a quite a simple activity would that work as an example relevant yeah. to our audience yeah. yeah. So the 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 reason for doing that. So sometimes things can be seem really counterintuitive, but actually, when you understand why in the wider picture, it makes a lot more sense. And the other thing I would say, and my experience in organisational life has often been that somehow, organisational development or OD and HR are competing with each other as ideas in organisations. You get this kind of weird OD team competing for resources with the HR team. And yeah. I find that all of that really unhelpful. And, and, and I think the distinctions are not really worthy of that much exploration. I think if we're going to achieve together the healthy organisations we all want, then it's about collaborating together, whatever our title is, in order to achieve what the organisation needs. Absolutely. And also lots of our listeners are, you know, maybe not in large organizations and they've got the HR <laughs> and OT hat on all on their own. And so re having yeah. some confidence that if any of these things we're saying resonate, it's just, you know, the fact that it's our job to go, the knock but the knock on of doing this is likely to be this. You're you're acting as a systems thinking. You're thinking more broadly than just doing a tactical HR job. You're actually thinking from the organizational point of view yeah. as well. And always coming back to the question, is this helping us achieve the organization's purpose in the end? 
Totally holding true. that as the as the as the guiding light for our decision making process, and, and that loops right back to being strategic. Um, and Indeed. actually, you know, what are we trying to achieve here? And and OD, that the whole point, where are we trying to go? How does this all hang together? And is this going to help us on our way, or actually be counterproductive because we're being And then I'm also asking ourselves the question: Is it helping us towards the organisational purpose? And are we doing it in a way that is commensurate or and and in aligned with our values? Perfect, perfect loop there, Graham. Uh, Thank you so much. That's really, really fascinating. I I found that really useful as well in terms of those definitions for people. So I really hope that that has been beneficial for listeners in terms of maybe making it a little bit less scary. Um, So thank you for talking very much in in real layman's terms and giving examples. I imagine some people might want to reach out to you, Graham, or know a bit more about um, the programmes you run. Obviously, we'll put links in the show notes, but if you want to briefly tell people where they can find you and when the next programmes are, that would be great. Okay, so we've we, you can find us at Roffey Park uh, on the internet. So if you put Roffey Park Institute in the internet, you'll find us uh, quite quickly. Uh, and there's an awful lot of data and information on the, the website in terms of what we do and how we do it and when the programmes are and certainly about the MSC and, and, you, and where you might find – you it's can come and talk to me. It's, it's, people it don't is, it's, it's an, actually – yeah, so the MSC is an online programme, so we redesigned it uh, just over two years ago. It used to be um, residential at Roffey Park. Uh, and uh, we redesigned it to be a fully online program, and and you know one of the challenges of that is that often people like to have been a room together, and I understand that. And actually, our intention is to bring a, a, a residential version of the program uh, into being next year. But the on, what the online program allows us to to do <clears throat> is to reach out to a much more international uh, participant. Uh, so we've got people from Australia, from New Zealand, from Singapore, from India, from the Netherlands, and we've even got someone from the Caribbean as well as the UK. And what the beauty of that, what's great, is it, it helps people see different international perspectives in terms of the practice of organisational development. Organisational development started out as a kind of very um, you know, global northwestern, mainly American, but also UK. Kind of set of ideas that came from you know essentially uh, all the white men in America and Britain you know and and, and increasingly the world recognizes that you know all all wisdom does not necessarily come from those kind of places and what's great about the MSC is that other wisdom and other ways of thinking are being brought to bear into what we're talking about and the way people write about their context in their country and how their understanding these ideas is is become becoming really fruitful. And the other thing being online allows us to do is allows us to to offer it to the world at, at a kind of price point, at a kind of cost to the individual or the organization that becomes much more affordable. So yeah. um people can, you know, in that midpoint in the career, if they're looking to step up to a to an executive position, then it starts to look affordable from their perspective because we're able to do it online. Brilliant. Well, I'll get. We'll put the links on. So, if anyone wants to know any more, and of course, I know you're on. You're on LinkedIn, Graham, aren't you? So, uh, I am. Yeah, people can get in touch on LinkedIn. They'll find my uh, email address and my details on the website at Roffey Park. But if if it's helpful, it's Graham Curtis at RoffeyPark.ac.uk. Perfect, Graham. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to have you on the HR Uprising podcast. It, thank you for inviting me, Linda Lucinda. It's been lovely talking to you. 
I really hope you found this week's episode useful and enjoyable. If you did, perhaps you could recommend us to a friend or colleague or give us a review on your platform of choice. It really helps new listeners to find us. Now you can access links to any of the information mentioned in this show via the website www.hruprising.com. Further free resources are also available at www.actus.co.uk. There you can also find out more about our software and training solutions. Finally, why not join our LinkedIn group, The HR Uprising, to share ideas and collaborate with other like-minded people professionals. Thank you for listening to The HR Uprising podcast.